Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, wow. I mean, he's a man on a mission to inspire people to transform their health and happiness. And he is empowering us all to make meaningful and sustainable change to our lifestyles. Dr. Rungan, welcome to the Power Hour. Adrian, I'm uh, pretty excited to come on the show. Yeah, I'm really excited for this one for lots of reasons, but mostly because we're actually together in London, in the studio. You know, for the last two years, I've been recording remotely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know we were, we thought about doing it remotely before, but I actually said to my team, I said, look, I I want to meet you, actually. I really like your stuff online. I thought, I I, I want to do it in person with you. So it feels really good to be here sat next to you having this conversation. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's definitely pros and cons, of course, to the remote world. And, you know, you do a lot of broadcast and virtual online work too. And I think, you know, I've been able to connect with people all over the world, different time zones, different places. But I really love being able to sit opposite you have this conversation face to face and do you think that how do you think it compares I suppose we've all got used to now the virtual world how do you think it compares when you can sit face to face with someone I think it's a very different experience sitting face to face as you say there's a there's of course loads that we can loads of benefits we get from online communication Um, but we also miss something and you know, depending on what study you, you, you read, sixty to ninety percent of all communication is nonverbal. Mm. So this is why I think things like emails and text messages often get misconstrued because actually it's just the words, but you're not even hearing the words where you at least get tone of voice and that sort of nuance. You're just it's very transactional, it's very one dimensional communication and you know, as humans, we can have this beautiful three-dimensional communication when we're face-to-face. So, yes, I use online communication as and when I need to. But as a fellow podcast host, you know, I until the pandemic, I didn't do any remote interviews. I wouldn't do it. I, it all had to be face-to-face. And then I adapted, like everyone. And I've had some great conversations online, sure. But I'll tell you the difference. I don't feel I know that person. You know, it's like, you know what it's like when you're doing Mm. a Zoom call, like you've got other things to do beforehand, then you show up on the meeting, you you have it and then you get on with your day. But even that we have a little chat before we we're 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 recording and afterwards, you know, well, I think that's what a key part of the human experience is these real world communications. And I think we're we're missing it. And I even think with, you know, working from home, a lot of people it was quite a novelty at first. Yeah. Oh, this is amazing. I'd have to get on the train or do this. And wow, I can go for a walk every morning. Okay, great. Of course, there are benefits. Mm. But there's a lot of people now who are missing getting out of the house, yeah. having that social connection with other people. Mm. And it's not even, um, Adrienne, about just seeing good friends or work colleagues, right? Those things are amazing. But I've written a whole chapter uh, in my latest book on why talking to strangers is so important. 
right? Yeah. And we, we have a part of our brain um, that scientists call the sociometer. And that sociometer is constantly scanning the world for threats. You know, is my external world safe? Mm. So if we meet another human being, let's say the postman drops something in and instead of just taking the mail or missing them, you'd say, hey, how's it going? Oh, thanks so much. Uh, have a good day. And they say something back to you. That's a message to your sociometer. Oh, yeah, you know what? The outside world is safe. Everything's okay. Um, when you go and buy a coffee, you know, sure, you can make a coffee at home. I like making coffee at home. But there's also something nice about going to a coffee shop, mm-hmm. the ambiance, someone making it for you. So I think, yeah, I mean, we could talk for a whole hour just on that topic. <laughs> yeah. I'm very passionate about it. But I do think for all its benefits, this online communication world, we have mm-hmm. to be very, very careful that it's not this rich three-dimensional experience that we can get face-to-face. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I agree with so much of what you said. And I'm interested really to see where it goes from here because I'm somebody who, you know, I'm really passionate about innovation. I'm always thinking really about how things change and evolve, everything from our behaviour to technology, everything. And especially with being a parent, I'm sure you probably think about, you know, the future for young people. And I'm really interested to see how it evolves this this hybrid world for education as well, you know, for people that are learning, as you described what are they missing if they are doing online learning, if we're doing things more virtually, more remote, more by ourselves, more, yeah, in solitude? What There's benefits, but what are we what are we missing? And, um, yeah, I'm really interested to, to see where it will go. Yeah, you know, there's, um, as well as online learning, there's this wonderful book that I think you will love called Reclaiming Conversation by someone called Sherry Turkle in America. And... Um, she basically outlines how lots of uh, youngsters and teenagers now prefer to communicate online than face-to-face. And one of the reasons is because they feel it's more predictable. Wow. Right? So you get a text message. You can think about it. You can write your response. You can edit it. You can yeah. get it just right and then send it back. Whereas face-to-face, you can't edit. You have to respond in the moment and that this comes at a huge cost mm. because actually then we're trying to edit every part of our communication and make it all perfect. But real life communication in the moment is imperfect. Mm. Like we're face to face, right? And of course we could do this online. But because we're having a conversation, you know, we could have this conversation on five different days and there'll be five different conversations because mm. you could ask the same questions but I'll be a different person yeah I'll show up with a a different morning a different uh amount of sleep last night different stresses in my life so I think we need to embrace that imperfection and go no this is what it means to be human we can't curate and control every aspect of our life and it's okay for it to be like a little bit messy mm, yeah and, it, and and to be honest I think people appreciate that much so much more now than ever before oh, you know yeah. I was at an event last night actually I was speaking and first it was so again great to be in yeah, a room yeah. full of women but secondly I think sometimes why what the feedback I get from people afterwards is like thank you for being honest because I don't always just you know give the perfect answer or deliver it in the way that it's so formal sometimes I'm just like you know what let me just tell you the truth this in my experience this was my and people really appreciate I think now more than ever ever actually real honest conversation that doesn't feel super scripted or sound like you've you've you know you're trying to come across a certain way you actually can just be yourself and people really respect that i think that's one of the reasons that podcasting is exploding Mm. 
uh, and why I, I dearly love the medium as a you know creator and a host of podcasts, but also a consumer, because I think we are people are getting tired of a very inauthentic way of being and communicating. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm yeah. We're, we're recording this in launch week, right, for my book. So I've you know this is my fifth book in five years. So I've done a lot of publication weeks. And the difference when you go on a BBC show or an ITV show, you've got about four minutes. Yeah. Right? It's four minutes live to try and communicate. A um, whole book. A whole book and a nuance. And yes, there's an art and a skill to being able to do that for sure. But it can only ever be surface level. Mm. It can't go deeper. Mm. Right? Whereas when I like come on, on your show or, or I go and appear on other podcasts... You can get into the nuance and the depth. And, you know, one thing, how long have you had your podcast for now? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Congratulations. Yes, thank yeah, you. man, that is, yeah, I'm, what am I, just over four years, four years and two months. So yeah. pretty similar times. Time, yeah. yeah. And it's really interesting. When I started, which is maybe six months or so before you, mm. I remember people saying, hey, wrong and listen, um, you know, the perfect length for a podcast in the UK is about 40 minutes. That's the average length of a commute. Sure. I was like, okay, I didn't know what I was doing at the start. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just start doing it. You think, is anyone going to listen? Yeah. Okay, let me just see what happens. And I would do these 40-minute conversations. There's nothing wrong with that. People enjoyed them. But I didn't feel... I always felt, ah, there's something left here. There's, there's something unexplored. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to follow my heart here. And I went longer and longer. Now, sometimes it's an hour and a half. Sometimes it's two hours, yeah. right? And as they've got longer, they've got more popular, mm. right? So by breaking the rules of what you're meant to do, and I just followed my heart, more and more people listen. What I found in these long conversations, Adrienne, is that the second half always is better than the first half yeah. because you've built up that connection. You've sort of not jabbed around, but you know, you, you built up trust and you mm -hmm. go deeper. Yeah. And I, I, and I think that podcasting for me is the modern day campfire, mm. right? Yeah. We're missing yeah. connection in so many aspects of our lives. So people will listen to me or you and they'll go on their walks and we, we're the soundtrack to their, to their walk or their commute. Yeah. We're, we're getting that sense of community through this beautiful medium of podcasting which I think is very rich and very human. Oh, I agree. I listen to a lot of long form podcasts as well. And I think you're totally right. The depth that you get as the conversation progresses, you might go in a different direction. And as a host of the show, there's nothing worse than feeling, as you described, you know, if I do broadcast or in, in different things where there's a limit on the time, there's nothing worse than if I was thinking now, looking at you, looking at the clock and thinking, oh, I've got to get to this question, this question. It, it definitely changes the whole dynamic and it feels it can feel rushed and it can feel as you said surface you don't get the nuances you don't get the the complex back and forth it just has to be quite yeah but quite and, black and white and i think people are craving this mm. right why how can long-form podcasting be so popular there's some huge U u.s shows doing mm. long-form podcasting you know i've I, my the reach i have on my show is just incredible no, i couldn't even have dreamed about it several years ago when i started it and if it's true that no one has attention anymore, if it's true that everyone wants it very quick because we can't concentrate, well, why on earth are some of the biggest podcasts on the planet yep. two hours long or two and a half hours long? Why? I think it's because fundamentally 
we are craving authentic connection mm. and i think we're sick and tired of overly edited inauthentic connection and i think you know i, I really i wonder where kind of traditional broadcast media will be in five or ten years mm. personally i think I think it's so different. Yeah. Well, let's see. And sit tight if you're listening, because uh, as you can tell, we've got a lot to get through. And I'm so excited to, you mentioned that it's publication week. I am so excited to dive in and talk to you about your latest book. I have so many questions, so many thoughts that came up for me because I was lucky enough to receive an early uh, digital version. So, you know, I've got so many things within it that I just want to talk to you about today. Firstly, I've got to say congratulations because I was going to say, you know, you've written four best selling books, but this is book number five. And it is already a bestseller and it's just incredible so you know all of your hard work all of your well-deserved success you know people probably see what you do and think well of course you have a team and of course there's you know always a machine I guess that also helps but the reality is you've managed to do something that not many medical professionals can do and I think you reach people in a way that makes them feel as though they have agency it makes them feel like oh this is something I can do you you don't shame people or blame people or make them feel like well you know you're not doing this right or you're not doing that you know eating that food or exercising this way or sleeping enough or everyone's doing their best and I think that actually what you've done so well for so many people probably more than you'll ever know is for people young old you know big small different genders different races different ethnicities to go actually I can do that. I might not be able to do it perfectly. I might not be able to do everything in the book, but there's a lot in here for me. And as you've seen from the amount of you know people that read your books and listen to your work, you really do help and reach so many people. Oh, well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, you know, I think a lot of this comes from the fact that I've got real life experience mm. of seeing tens of thousands of people, you know, in, in a couple of months, it'll be 21 years of seeing patients. That's a long time. That's tens of thousands of patients. And mm-hmm. what you learn, if you're really open-minded and listen to people, is that everyone's different. Everyone's got different lives. Everyone's got different pressures, different cultural beliefs, different ethics. There is no one right way. There are some general principles, mm-hmm. but there's no one right way. So I've always struggled to, you know, I believe in personalized medicine. I believe that we need to help people develop personalized plans for them mm. that suit them. But then when you're trying to write a book and you know it from writing the power hour, um, how do you how do you deliver personalization in a book that you've written for the mass market? Yep. And I hope, I'd like to think I've managed to do it because I provide frameworks for people. There's no kind of Dr. Chatterjee plan to follow, right? It's kind of no, these are the these are the broad principles what's going to work for you within that you know let me help you figure out what's going to work for you and i think that's what's resonated you know i the way you talk to people and treat people i think is the most important thing um you know i one thing i'm i try my best to do is always behave with compassion and respect i don't talk down about other people online um you know i don't try and uh, elevate my ideas at the expense of anybody else which is very common these days Mm. and um it's just not how i want to do things it's i don't want to contribute to negativity in the world because i think how we do the small things is how we do everything and so for me how you come across and how you behave is really really important and i think that's one of the things that people kind of resonate with Mm. is it's like 
I, I also don't tell people what to do, Adrian. Right? Yeah. I, I, I've said this before. I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, but I've never told a patient what to do. I've never told a patient that they have to give up smoking. What I will do if a patient comes in to see me and asks for my opinion, yeah. I will say, hey, listen, well, I think your smoking is affecting you in these th- three ways. And if you were to reduce or give up, I think you would get these improvements. If at the end of that conversation, they say to me, Dr. Chesley, look, I've heard you. I've understood that. But actually, um, I get so much enjoyment out of that cigarette that I'm prepared to put up with the consequences. I actually respect that. It's a choice, isn't it? It's a choice. And as a fellow human being, I don't feel I've got any right to tell someone else what to do. Now, the second stage of that is I happen to get really good compliance with my patients. And I think the reason I do is because I don't talk down to them. I do treat them as an equal and I totally value their opinion in terms of them deciding what's right for them. And I kind of feel this is a big piece of health that like we often miss. Sure, buy a book, get some ideas, follow a plan, but at some point it it has to become your plan. You have to, let's say they like the idea of the power hour, right? And I do, and I have a power hour, Great. right? So I can't wait to talk about that. I've been a huge fan of morning routines for many, many years. They they really set me up for the whole of my day. When I do them, I'm a different person. When I don't do them, but I think people need a framework and go. Okay, well, maybe an hour won't work for me, or maybe I can do half an hour. Or oh, well, she does yoga in hers, but I don't really like yoga. I think I'd rather do some breath work or some Pilates. And I, I like frameworks so that people can personalise for them. Yep. Um, I don't know, have you found that to be helpful? Oh, absolutely. I totally agree that giving suggestions, giving ideas, giving frameworks, giving people the tools themselves to say, okay, great, okay, this is something I want to work on. And also knowing that person knows what's going on in their life. They know when it's the time to make those changes, when it's... Um, going to be the most impactful for them and I want to bring it back to the book because as I said so many things in there that I want to talk to you about and so the new book Happy Mind Happy Life offers 10 simple ways to feel great every day now I'm really interested to talk specifically about the idea of happiness happiness is something I believe we all want I'm sure that we can all think of a time in our lives when we've been really happy or a time when we've been deeply unhappy and we can probably list people places moments that we can remember maybe a photograph or a video something where we've been really really happy but the thing about happiness is you know it's defined as an emotional state it's characterized by a feeling of joy contentment satisfaction it's not something that you just have and then that's it you have it forever you know it constantly changes so i think my first question about happiness is if it is something that's constantly changing i think everybody wants it i think everybody seeks it do you believe that with all the, the work and the research that you've done, do you think it's possible for us to be happy every single day? It depends on the definition of happiness. Mm-hmm. And I think happiness is one of those terms that we could say it to 10 different people and they'll interpret that in 10 different ways. Mm-hmm. So I do agree with you that every one of us wants to feel happy as often as we can. Yep. I think that's become a bit unfashionable these days because I think we many of us feel that happiness is having a smile on our face the whole time and many of us feel it's waiting for everything to be perfect in our lives where 
we don't have any problems at work, everyone treats us really nicely, the world is a certain way. The problem is that's never going to happen, right? These are external factors that we can't control. So therefore, I have a definition of the book as something that I call core happiness. So everything that I've tried to do in my public-facing career, and frankly with my patients as well, is make things practical. So sure, let's come up with a great idea. You know, happiness can seem like quite a vague concept sometimes. It's Mm. just this, it's almost like a mirage that for whatever reason, one day I might just feel happy and I want to grab it and bottle it when it's there, but the next day it's gone and it's vanished. But I don't see it like that. So I'm going to explain to you what I mean by core happiness. I've tried to develop what I think is a universal model of happiness that holds true in every situation. And as of yet, I haven't found a situation where it doesn't hold true, although... I'm not attached to it. So I, I welcome, if anyone has got a situation where it doesn't, I'm yeah. always looking to learn and get better. I'm really curious. Um, but so far, I think it holds true. And for me, core happiness, the happiness that I think we all want has these three key components. Think of it like a three-legged stool, right? Mm-hmm. Each of the legs is separate, yep. but each of the legs is essential. And if one of those legs is weak and you're not strengthening it, your feelings of happiness will start to collapse. And the three legs are, number one, alignment. What's alignment? Alignment is when the person who you really are inside and the person who you are actually being out there in the world are one and the same. It's when your inner values and your external actions start to match up. Now, I would, I, I think, I firmly believe that many of us are living out of alignment. I've lived most of my life out of alignment. I've tried to be someone in order to get external validation from the world around me, right? I wanted to be accepted and fit in, right? And I know where that comes from in my charter. It's very, very clearly. That's a very lonely place to be, right? You're not really living your life. You're living somebody else's life. And certainly for me, when my dad died just over nine years ago, that was the moment but I started to ask myself all these existential questions. Who am I? Whose life am I really leading? Um, So that's one leg, alignment. The second leg is contentment. Contentment is the sort of things you do in your life that give you that sense of calm and peace. I think we all know naturally contentment. Yeah, I I know what things make me feel content. The third leg which I think is really important at the moment because I don't think those two legs are enough. I don't think alignment is enough Mm. in and of itself. I don't think contentment is. And to come up with a complete model, I I have this final leg, which I call control. Now, again, control is a word that I am denied about. This word can easily be misinterpreted. This is not about controlling the world. The world is inherently uncontrollable, right? We've seen that last two years, right? You may want the world to be a certain way, but it will do what it's going to do. So it's not about controlling the world around you, because if you're waiting for that level of control in order to be happy, you're going to wait a long, long time. Mm. This is about a sense of control. What are the things that you can do day to day, like the power hour, for example, right, that give you that sense of control over your life? Because we know from the research, people who have a sense of control, they have higher motivation. They have higher academic success. They earn more money. They are healthier. They live longer and they're happier. So this sense of agency, the sense of control is really, really important. So these three legs, I think, are what core happiness is and the happiness that all of us deep down really want. And 
what I think or I hope is really useful for people is that you can work directly on these legs. That's, you know, there's a lot of simple, um, I say low cost tools, free tools. Everything in the book is free to do that actually are going to help you work on those stools. uh, Sorry, those legs of the stool. Mm -hmm. And that's going to mean your core happiness tool is going to be much more stable. You're going to have the side effect of feeling happier more often, right? So you're not directly working on happiness. You're working on alignment, contentment, and control. The side effects, and what a beautiful side effect, is that you're going to feel happier more often. Now, can I just compare core happiness to another term I have in the book that I call junk happiness? Mm-hmm. Junk happiness... I'm going to put a pin, though. I'm going to come back to these three from a personal... As you're talking, I'm thinking, OK, how does that... Uh, OK, well, let, I'll just so, try and briefly summarise junk happiness. Junk happiness is the opposite of core happiness, right? Mm-hmm. So a junk happiness habit, we all have a go-to junk happiness habit, at least one, if not more, that could be sugar. It could be um, alcohol. It could be three hours on Instagram. It could be online shopping. It could be gambling, right? Something to distract ourselves, something that gives us that hit often when we don't want to face the reality of life. And I, there's nothing necessarily wrong with a junk happiness habit. The problem I think comes is when we engage in these things too often Mm -hmm. we don't understand why we're engaging in them or we make the big mistake that those things are bringing us this deep level of core happiness when most of the time they're really not so that's how i kind of separate the two things so Mm -hmm. i do think we all want to be happy but i put it through the lens of core happiness which doesn't mean you have to have a smile on your face every day you can still have high levels of core happiness and actually feel pretty sad sometime Mm. which might seem like a contradiction no, I love this framework. I really love this framework. And the reason I wanted to put a pin in that uh, the three pillars part is because I feel like personally reflecting, I'm thinking, okay, the alignment part, I do a lot of work on this. You know, I do mentoring, I do workshops literally about this, about helping people yeah, understand lovely. their core values, understand what is the most important thing, the most meaningful thing to you in your life. If you had to eliminate everything else, what remains? And so I feel like for me, the alignment part, I'm like, yes, my work aligns with what I do. Hopefully my lifestyle and my actions, my behavior align so that feels great the third one control I agree with you the word people say oh you can't control everything but again I'm a big advocate of influence I think there's so many things we can do to influence the outcome so like you say daily habits diet sleep um who you listen to what you feed your mind what you feed your body influence and control I'm like got it tick the one that I struggle with which I want to talk to you about is the contentment piece and I think that this is something that I've interrogated especially over the last few years and I think you know I'm somebody who's very ambitious I think a lot of people who listen to this show are high achieving people you know they might be uh, they're probably healthy people they invest in you know they're runners they're they're people who listen to your work and they're very Yes, self-motivated, ambitious people. I think where the contentment piece comes in for me is I know that I'm someone who feels validated by achievement. I know I'm someone who, and for a lot of people who listen, probably look left and right. And that comparison feeling of, well, I I think the feeling of what I'm trying to describe is, on the one hand, I'm incredibly grateful for where I am, what I have, what I've achieved, but I also know I feel validated by achievement. So therefore, I'm always chasing the next achievement. I'm almost working towards the next goal, the next marathon, the next book, the next whatever. And as a result, I think for a lot of people at the moment in the world, the contentment piece, it's so hard because you can always go, yeah, I'm super abundant i'm so lucky i've got food in the fridge i'm healthy i've got friends i've got everything but 
And with that but, I think is where people's yeah. unhappiness comes because there's always something you could look at and think, but I haven't got that yet or I haven't done this yet or, you know, bigger house, bigger car, bigger whatever. So tell us, why are we all struggling with the contentment piece? Yeah, I think you've just brought up such a great point and such an important point and I can resonate with that. It's like personal more, therapy for me now. <laughs> deeply than you could possibly imagine and I'll share why in just a moment. So first thing I'm going to ask you is, do you know where that drive to succeed comes from? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. I do. I think, you know, I grew up in a family of four. My um, single mother did her best, but, you know, it was very much a, I guess, fight for attention at home. Yeah. And, and I think at school, my teachers didn't expect much from me or my siblings. They really didn't expect much from any of us. And I think it partly came from a feeling of a bit of a chip on my shoulder, a bit of a, well, I'll show you. You know, mm. you don't think that I can achieve anything. And actually, look, I'll, I'll show you. All, me and all my siblings have all achieved a lot. But secondly, I think that if I, when I am achieving things, people say to you, well done. We congratulate people when they do good yeah. things. We congratulate our children when they come first in the race. People congratulate you when your book is a bestseller. That feeling of people saying, well done, they see you. You're offering something of value, which makes you feel worthy. And I know this is really, really deep, but I really, as I said, have interrogated this. And I understand now that that's where I get my feeling mm. of I'm doing something of value to someone. So therefore, they're going to want me around. Yeah. And that's where the opportunity, I would say, for your growth lies, right? It's in that because if we're always chasing more, and I'm speaking from experience here as well as hopefully a level of expertise, it's an unwinnable game, mm. right? Success, defining your self-worth on success is unwinnable, right? If someone's metric was money in terms of how well they're doing in life, well, until you're Jeff Bezos, someone's always got more than you. So it doesn't matter how much you get, someone's always getting more. And you see this commonly. You, you, I think there's a study which showed you ask anyone, a whole range of people were asked, you know, how much money would you need to feel okay about your life? Everyone hmm. said about 30% more. Doesn't matter whether you're earning 30 grand a year, 100 grand a year, a million a year. Everyone just wants that little bit more, then yeah. life would be good. So for me, it comes down to where does that desire to succeed come from? And broadening this out beyond you, right? Because mm. I'm talking to myself here as well. Is it coming from a place of lack or a place of love? Mm. A lot of our ambition comes from a place of lack. If I achieve that, I'll show them. What will it say to somebody else? But that intention never leads to true contentment, right? My story on that is immigrant parents from India to the UK, 1960s and 1970s, faced a lot of discrimination, right? Really, really struggling. They certainly, I know in many immigrant families this is the case, but certainly in uh, Indian families that I'm experienced with, there is a huge, um, uh, huge, huge um, amount of motivation Huge amount of effort is put onto academic success. Mm. Get a profession. Get yep. a profession. Yep. Because for my parents, if you do well at school, you won't have to face the same problems as we had. So what happens then, and there's a perspective here, and perspective actually is a big part of happiness. Knowing that you can take different perspectives on the same situation is a skill I only developed in the last few years, but as the last few years, which is probably been at the heart of why I feel so content and calm these days in a way that I never used to but 
if I'd come home from school with 19 out of 20, it was always, well, why didn't you get 20? If I came home with 99%, why didn't you get 100%? If I was second in the class ever, well, who came top? Why didn't you come top? So here's the thing. I, when I was writing the books, I'd be very open about a lot of my experiences in a way that I never could have done in previous books. I would have been too scared of judgments. Mm-hmm. But I've really made peace with a lot of my inner parts now and I feel I'm able to share them openly. I said to mum recently, hey mum, why did you say that to me when I was a little boy? She said, well, you know, I just want you to be the best that you could be. I know how capable you are, so I want you to be the best you could be. I didn't do the same with your brother. He has different skills and different capabilities. So from mum and dad's perspective, they're doing it from a place of love. Mm. They're wanting me to be the best that I can be. Problem is, little Rongan (laughs) takes on the idea, which I only realised in the last five or six years, that I'm only worthy, I'm only enough when I get top marks, right? And so therefore, yeah, on the outside, things look great. You can get straight A's, go to medical school, get a nice job, have all the trappings and in inverted commas of success, but you still don't feel good inside because there's always something more you could be doing. Even in a lot of my public facing career, yep. you know, seven years now since I first came on uh, television on BBC One in 2015 with Doctor in the House, even then I was driven by external validation. Sure, I loved helping people, and I'm driven, I'm a, I think I'm a compassionate person who really likes to help others. But I also liked the plaudits. Yeah. It made me feel good, right? Now, as I've made peace with that, and as I've actually done the work to realize, actually, no, my external success is says nothing about my self-worth as a human being. Mm. Interesting, as we talk now, this is my fifth book in five years, right? I promise you, this is the only book where I've not been anxious about the launch. The first four in the weeks leading to it, you've got a little bit nervous. Um, you know, what's going to happen? Is it going to do as well as the last one? Yeah, the exactly. The pressure. pressure. Yeah. Problem is, this went my first book, huge international bestseller, number one in all books on Amazon, right? You've got a problem. That's the new bar. Yep. So suddenly, now I'm lucky that all books have, have gone to that metric, but here's the problem is that they did. Second book, third book and fourth book all got there as well. But the feeling of joy went down each time, right? right? I tell you, it sounds amazing. First time when when I was number one in all books, I tell you, my mates from uni were WhatsApping me, yeah. like, mate, this is unbelievable. I was like, yeah, I can't believe it, you know? Great, real artificial elevation. Mm-hmm. Second time it happens, yeah, yeah, cool. Really, really good. Not quite as good as the first time, but still really good. Third time, it's an expectation now. People go... Okay, yeah. cool. You know, almost like that's the norm. Yeah. Fourth time, when it happened last year, just relief that it bloody happens. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, not, he's got another one. Not even... Jo- no, no. But And I and I say this, you know, I would have felt too shy to, 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 to sort of say this publicly a few years ago. You think, who can relate to that? You know, nice problem to have, mate. No, no. This is real, right? This is inner discontentment. Many people have to get these high levels of success to realise, actually... They weren't the answer. I interviewed Johnny Wilkerson last week for my podcast. I've not put it out yet. Johnny Wilkerson, if people don't know, um, you know, he was an England rugby uh, player. In the last minute of the World Cup final in 2003, he he kicks the winning goal that gives England the World Cup, right? He achieved all of his dreams by the age of 24. And I have a section in chapter one saying your dreams won't make you happy Mm. if you're not careful. Right, And the publisher actually said, wrong, and this is pretty negative. I said, no, I'm keeping this in because I really mean it. Many of us are chasing the wrong dreams. 
And he describes that the minute the ball left his foot, he starts to go down and feel low. They win the World Cup, he feels nothing inside. Wakes up the following day feeling empty and lonely, right? And you'll see this story playing out over and over again. I had this beautiful conversation with someone called Pippa Grange on my podcast, who was a psychologist with the England football team for many years. And she has this gorgeous concept called winning shallow and winning deep, Mm. right? So the question is, how do you want to win in life? Do you want to win shallow from that place of lack? I'm going to show people, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to prove that I am worth something, which again, I get it. I've had that. But it comes from a place of lack when you realize actually, no, the the drive now to do well is still there, but it's different. Like the reason I'm relaxed about this book is I know that this is the best book I've ever written. I know that this is literally i think it's a fantastic book that will help anyone and i say that with zero arrogance that's honestly how i genuinely feel about it whether it does well or not it's no reflection of who i am and that feeling doesn't change that You're doesn't not change for it, yeah. you know having for me having children has been wonderful about this because my kids do not care whether daddy sells one copy of the book or a hundred thousand copies. Any, yeah. My son does not care what it's, I'm doing. It's a self-created narrative in your head and my head, yeah. right? And for many of us, that narrative keeps us going. We think we need it for success, mm. but actually a lot of the research is saying now we don't. Yeah. We don't need it. We think we do. And then let's not beat ourselves up, right? You're very successful. You're doing wonderful things. You're helping so many people, right? It served you. Right, because that's the contradiction. Because where I know that we shouldn't use these words, success and happiness, interchangeably, we know they're not the wrong thing. It is a trap, as you've described very, very well. It is a trap. So if we're chasing the wrong goal, if we're chasing the wrong dream, that success, no matter how big, will not replace happiness. But as you say, I know that actually having that chip on the shoulder, and I've worked on it, as I said, that drive, whatever you call it, that feeling of, for me as well, scarcity, you know, growing up with scarcity gives you ambition, gives you drive. I also think if you took that away, would you achieve these things? And that's, again, for a lot of the listeners of this show, that is where they're at. They think, well, I I hear you, Adrienne, I hear you, Rangan, but if I take that away, will I lose my drive and ambition? Will I still achieve? Will I still... But then do I feel content and happy? It's so complex. Do you beat yourself up in your head sometimes? You know what? When This is the thing. So when I read what you'd written about self-compassion, honestly, self-compassion to me, I used to roll my eyes because I used to think self-compassion is just, with regards to myself, not others, it's letting yourself off the hook. It's laziness. You know, self-compassion for me used to literally be, well, of course... You don't always, no one feels motivated all the time. Nobody wants to do it all the time. Roll your sleeves up and get on with it. Yeah. I used to force myself to do things even when I didn't want to because I, I've, self-compassion is not something that comes easily to no. me at all. So yes, I do beat myself well, up. Well, most of these things that I've written about have not come easy to me, mm. right? It's the book I needed to write for myself, yeah. right? That Which makes the best books normally is when I deeply wanted to get these ideas down because I, I they've helped me and actually been able to simplify this as has really helped me. You know, it's so funny, Adrian, I've done so many interviews this week mm. and the publicist, Penguin, everyone's saying, Wrong, you've never been this relaxed. We've never known you. I'm totally chilled. Like, You're I'm going, happy. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm like, this interview now, me going on Chris Evans this morning, this, whether it goes well or not, is not a reflection of who I am. Mm. And actually, when you come from that place, you actually do a much better job because you're not trying to prove yourself anymore. Yeah. You're just speaking from the heart. Self-compassion, being kind to yourself, treating yourself as well as you might treat your child or a friend. 
This is not a vague woolly concept, right? Professor Kristen Neff has studied this for over 20 years. There's probably over a thousand published papers on this. She has shown that people who are compassionate to themselves have higher levels of motivation. They have incredible success. It's much longer lasting, the success, because I tell you, when you beat yourself up, sure, you can succeed, but it comes in in a turmoil and a cost, right? You're knackering yourself out whilst you're doing it. She's shown that people who are compassionate to themselves are healthier, they age more slowly, they have better immune system function. Right, so a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't until I became familiar with her research, that when we call ourselves a loser in our head, we think it doesn't matter. I didn't say it to anyone else. I'm just like, come on, wrong and you lose. I can't believe you can do this. Actually, you activate your body's stress response right. when you do that. That is real. Yeah. Right? It's not just this thing you say in your head. No, that is absolutely real. So, you know, you can succeed and it not come from a place of deficiency. Mm. And again, it's also to recognize that a lot of these um adaptate a lot of these personality traits that we have are not fixed. Yes. Right. I'm they a were big advocate of that. They were adaptations that we needed to get us through. You needed it to get you through your childhood yeah. and be where you are today. Yeah. The problem is a lot of them serve us in childhood, but they don't serve us as adults, as parents. Mm. Like because you then imprint this stuff on your own kids and you're right? like, yeah. okay, wait a minute, wrong, and you need to sort this stuff out, right? So it's it's making peace with it, saying that worked up to a point. Yeah. And now it no longer serves me. You know, would you call yourself someone who's quite competitive? Hmm, interesting question. Because I don't think I'm competitive with others. I'm competitive with myself. So my comparison of the bar, if you like, or you know, a personal in a race, for example, is always against my own time. It's never against anybody else's. So I'm competitive with myself, but not so much with others. Yeah, that's interesting. I the reason I ask is because I I've been fiercely competitive my right. entire life yeah um i used to be fiercely competitive let me reframe that and if you'd ask any of my mates or family in the past is wrong and competitive 100 <laughs> percent yeah. yes i did not like to lose right. i would do anything in anything to not lose but i'm no longer competitive right but people say well that's your personality no it, it's not my personality if you go back to my childhood again I felt that I had to be really successful and achieve to be loved, yep. right? I'm not blaming my parents, right? There's different perspectives. They were trying to do the best they could for me. It's just the impression I took on. So being competitive helps me. That helps me serve that goal, yep. right? But now having recognized where that's come from and recognize that actually, I actually am enough. I don't need that external success to validate who I am as a human being. Mm all these little competitive tendencies I used to have, they've gone. Really? They've gone because it wasn't who I was. It was who I had to become. Mm. And that's been a, that's been like a light bulb moment for me in my life. Like a lot of our, a lot of who we think we are. I mean, this is getting super deep now, mm. right? But a lot of who we think we are is simply an adaptation to who we felt we had to be. Mm. And I, honestly believe that you can unwind that and change it i've done that i have as well i really have right? as well yeah. and it's an, it's not like i'm there it's a constant journey um and and what i why i think this book is going to be so helpful for people is i feel i've really distilled down and broken down these quite complex ideas sometimes into really simple concepts and simple exercises people can practice yeah. 
Um, can I can I share my favourite one? Yes, please do. Yeah, my, my it, there's ten chapters in the book. Each chapter is a kind of universal life lesson that I believe holds true for everyone. And if we apply it a little bit more in our life, we're going to be a little bit happier. Apply it a lot, we'll be a lot happier. And chapter five is really my favourite because it's the one I practice every day, and it's called seek out friction. And it's this idea that we can work out every day, not in the physical gym. Yeah. You could do that if you want, but in the social gym. Mm. So when we interact with other people and something happens that we don't like, like, oh, the tone of that email really bothered me or I can't believe that person just pulled in front of me in their car. Whatever, right? Instead of wishing that that other person had behaved in a different way, I use it as a learning opportunity about myself, mm -hmm. right? So let's say someone criticizes me online, okay? And you know what it's like to have an online persona. Um, and, you know, really, I get it pretty rarely these days. Um, but when it does happen, it used to really bother me a few years ago. Right. Honestly, I used to get really cut up. I was like, oh, I'm just trying to help people. Like, why is that person being so negative? But now I've understood that actually I can look at criticism in a different way. First of all, I make sure I'm not feeling emotionally triggered. And if I am, I sort of breathe into it, just try and let that settle first. Then I go, okay, is there any truth to this criticism? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? That's a good point. It's hard to do that. It's it is hard. hard, but it's a one of us. Going, they're like, yeah, you know what? Next time I post about this topic, I could probably could probably co cover those points as well to not give the wrong idea. So you're like, oh, wicked. I've learned something. Yeah. Brilliant. If I think, no, I don't think the criticism is fair, then you can look at it and go, actually, the tone of their uh, comment, they're, they're probably having a really bad day. I don't know what's going on in their life, but they're trying to take it out on me. <laughs> Or they've had a real difficulty with this issue and they're being totally triggered and taken out on me. Okay, I've now got compassion for them. That must be hard to feel like that. You can train yourself to do this. It yep. feels hard, but I promise when you work out in the social gym every day, every day when I get a bit of social friction, I use it as an opportunity to learn about myself. And if I'm really struggling, the phrase I use is if I was that person, I'd be doing exactly the same thing as them. Well. That phrase has changed my life because what that means at its core is if I was that person with their childhood, with the bullying they had at school, with their parents, with the toxic first boss they had at the age of 17, right? If I had their life, I'd be making the same decision as them in this moment. I'd have the same worldview as them. And I know that sounds really hard, but it gets so much easier when you practice. I do this every day. Mm. And... You, you go into every bit of social friction now with compassion and understanding. Sometimes it's harder than others, but you get to a point, and I, I genuinely feel that this week has been wonderful for me to be on the road, do the events, do all the media. I go, wow, this is not really stressing me out like it used to. Right. Because I feel when you work out in the social gym every day, you're literally, you're using it as an opportunity to learn about yourself. Why has that email from my boss bothered me? Was it their tone? Or is it because I'm insecure about this topic and it's just hit on that? You, every day becomes a school day. Yes. You can reframe every situation in life. Every situation. What I love about this so much is, well, you've said it a few times about change. You've said the word adaptation, learning. And I think this is something that I, you know, I'm guilty of preaching at people that you can always adapt. You can always change. You can always learn. And all of these things that you've described are a choice. So when people sometimes feel like, well, it's okay for you, Rongan, to do this. or it's right for you, Adrienne, to tell us that. But you don't understand because I can't because of X. I can't because of Y. This is the thing I yeah. always want people to understand is that your circumstances 
are going to be everyone's going to be unique but it doesn't dictate as you described when who you were before when you said about how it's changed the three words for me are it's different now yeah and just saying that it's different now maybe when you were you you say 12 maybe when you were 21 maybe last year but it's different now and knowing that you can always change where you start does not dictate where you end who the expectations of others you can always learn improve evolve and it doesn't mean just you know like me chasing chasing chasing. it doesn't mean i don't want people to listen to this conversation especially as they know i am an optimist i am positive i'm not saying you know oh chasing and progression is bad but what i'm saying is regardless of why you do it figure out yes the values the alignment figure out why you want those things but know that you can change your mind you can put something down that you were pursuing and go actually i was chasing that maybe for the wrong reason and now it's okay if i don't see that through to the end because i don't want it anymore yeah. it's different now I-, I love that it's different now what a wonderfully empowering three words for people it's it explains i'm just in a different state in my life it's different now it, you know in my 20s yeah that kind of works that's where i was at the time it's different now yeah. this whole reframing piece i think it's one of the most powerful things that we can learn to do is realize that in every situation, there are multiple perspectives. So me as a little kid, that situation where I feel I have to get good grades the whole time, there's two perspectives. Perspective one from my parents, driving me to be the best I can be. Other perspective is Rongan believes he's not enough unless he gets top marks. Okay, same situation, two different interpretations, right? Every situation in life has a different interpretation. Let's say a two partners having an argument. What really happened? Well, it kind of depends who you ask, Mm. right? One partner will say, this is exactly how this went down. Walk around to the other side of the table, completely different perspective of the same situation, right? So I say for the truth, I say for your happiness, the truth doesn't actually matter. What matters is that you create a happiness narrative, Mm. Right, And so this is why I love reframing situations or if someone cuts me up in the road, instead of the old Rongan being, um, man, I can't believe they did that. Did they not see me? I can't believe they should, you know, they need a new driving set. Well, no, whatever disempowering narrative I want to say, what does that do? That brings emotional stress into my body. That emotional stress will lead to me having to have a bit more sugar later or a bit more time online or a moan to my mate, some way of relieving that stress, right? But if you can go, you know what, if I was that person, I'd do the same. You know, maybe their daughter was up with earache last night and they're knackered and they're just trying to get through. Maybe they're rushing to get to work because they're scared of losing their job and that's the only job in their family. Whatever narrative you want, you train yourself to create that regularly, it becomes your default. Yeah. And someone is listening and thinking, okay, Rongan, Adrienne, it's all right for you guys. You're successful. You sure you've got the time and space to do that? I don't. Well, let me tell you about one of the most powerful conversations I've had in my entire life. About a year and a half ago on my podcast, I had an incredible conversation with someone called Dr. Edith Eager. I was not the same person after that as I was before that. She was 93 years old. And when she was 16 years old, she was living in Eastern Europe. She was getting excited. She had a date with her boyfriend that night and she was trying to choose what dress she was going to wear. They get a knock on the door. They literally, her sister and her and her two parents, get put on a train to Auschwitz concentration camp. Within two hours of getting there, both her parents are murdered. Oh gosh. Right? Later that day, she has to dance for the senior prison guards. And she said to me, this is the first thing that I remember from that conversation, Rongan, 
You know, I never forget the last thing my mum said to me, which was, Edie, never forget, nobody can take from you the content that you put inside your mind. So she said, when I was dancing, I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. In my mind, I was in Budapest Opera House. There was a full orchestra, there was a full house, I had a gorgeous dress on, that's where I was dancing. I thought, that's pretty incredible. Then she said to me, when I was in Auschwitz, I wasn't the prisoner. The prison guards were the prisoners. They were the ones who were not free and living their life. In my mind, I was free. I was like, this is just incredible. And then the words that I think about every day, well, when she said to me, I have lived in Auschwitz and I can tell you this, the greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your mind. That's what we do each day. Or you walk around, people are getting reacted by, they're getting affected by the actions of other people. They're framing a disempowering narrative. They're waiting for the world around them to change so that they can feel a certain way. It's your framework. You're creating that narrative. And you can change that narrative. And once you see it and understand it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. Right? You it's literally... so powerful. It's changed my entire life and for lots of other people. It, like What you just described, I really hope people will hear that and go back and listen to it again. Once you decide, it will. you can't unsee you it. You can't unsee you it. You can't unsee it. It's, it doesn't mean you'll be perfect every time. No. Sometimes you'll go, oh man, you know what? I took the victim narrative on that. I didn't need to. Actually, I could have mm. chosen to take it like this. Mm. And then next time it happens... It will show up for you and you'll find you're taking a different... It's just like going to the gym and lifting weights every day. You get better at lifting weights. You get stronger, right? If you practice and work out in the social gym every day, your social interactions become much better. And then going back to the core happiness tool, what happens? No one wants to be that person who feels agitated and frustrated by the actions of someone else. No one feels good in that moment. And actually what I've learned also is when we try and judge other people and make them wrong what we're effectively trying to do is lower them so that we can feel good and elevate ourselves that's a short-term win it's a long-term loss Mm. in the moment you think you're achieving something yeah you know they they did that i can't believe you know i'm better than them i would never do that it never feels good in the long term so this phrase if i were them i'd be doing the same thing yes it may be tricky sometimes but if you start from that standpoint you you lead with compassion and the more you do it, the easier it gets. And then when you find it easy to be compassionate to other people, you find it a lot easier to be compassionate to yourself as well. And that is what, oh, wow. I mean, that's what we all need right now in the world. I think we all need more compassion for others, definitely, and more compassion for ourselves. Before we move on to talk about the Power Hour, because I have to get into that with you, I think the last thing I really want the listeners to think about as well from this whole conversation, because there's so much in there, is that, Again, I've, I've outlined the kind of person I think anyway that listens to this show, the people that reach out. But I think if you are someone who engages with you know, your content, my content, like I said, maybe you're a healthy person trying to get healthier. And sometimes people will say to me, well, you know, with the work that we do, you're only reaching a certain kind of person. And the people that need it the most often are close to maybe this conversation. Maybe they don't listen to podcasts. Maybe they don't want to read that book. Maybe they say to, to you or I, well, actually, I've got bigger problems right now than thinking about my happiness because you know I've got maybe I've got debt maybe my child is ill maybe I'm overweight and I'm struggling with this or this or this and actually when you're you know we know there's a direct correlation between wealth and health and people who are in real social economic problems saying Adrienne I hear you but 
or, or other people who listen to this show to be able to have that conversation with the person they think needs it the most so what you've just described then when you take that empowering mindset you change your mindset and it might be the person's mother it might be their mm. sister it might be their boss it might be someone who they're like i know this is true and i'm living in in this way but that person who needs this help they're so close to it we all know those people don't well, we? we do they're defensive they're angry they are yeah they're really close to it how can people i suppose have this conversation or get them to buy your book or listen to what we're saying with an open mind it's difficult it's very difficult to address the first point there yes your socioeconomic status absolutely plays a role in your health and happiness, no question. I have worked in a place called Oldham for nearly eight years, right, in the past. I don't work there anymore. Uh, in an area, very low socioeconomic status, um, a big immigrant population, lots of benefits, um, you know, not much money, a lot of poverty and struggle. I have been applying these principles for years with patients in low income groups because here's the thing. Even if your life is tough, even if you have to work two jobs to make ends meet, if you learn to choose your reaction to certain situations, you are going to show up as a better version of yourself in your life, no matter how, how no matter how tough it is. If you learn some simple breathing exercises, right, which can help switch off your stress part of your nervous system and activate the relaxation side, you are going to make better decisions in your life, even if it's tough. So I think that's a really important point I, I always like to make clear for people. You can still apply some of these principles no matter what your life is. Mm. Edith Eager conversation just showed us that. Yep. Um, so that's the first part of it. The second part, just feeding off from that, is talking about happiness. Where does money fit into that? Mm. Right. Most of the research suggests that once you have enough money for your material needs to be met, like shelter, food, and safety. Most of the research suggests that more money will not make you happier. So I get it. If people aren't earning much at all and they're struggling, yes, striving to earn more will make a big difference. Mm. But the way I phrase it around money and happiness is that... I did, uh, The way I put it is that money removes common sources of unhappiness. Mm. I don't think money brings happiness in and of itself. Yeah, I suppose it, as you described then, if you have enough, then money gives you choices. It gives you exactly. agency. It gives you freedom. But once you have enough, as you described, I always say you don't need more than more. Yeah. Because if you have enough and you have a bit more and a bit more and a you bit more. You always want more. Yeah. And you can't, it won't change yeah. anything really. So, but then to the final part of that uh, question, which is how do you get it to people around you who you love? This is the commonest question I get at events. Dr. Chashi, you know, I've, I've got your books. I've made changes. I feel great but I can't persuade my mum or my best friend to do it. And I don't think we can, right? right? And, and I don't mean that to be um, a negative answer. People are ready for change when they're ready for change and not a moment earlier. That's really powerful for people to know because I wasn't expecting you to say maybe you can't, you know, maybe they won't. I, I've had to say that I, when I first got into the whole lifestyle medicine piece, when I realised how much agency we had over our lives... And I was trying to tell my whole family, my yeah. mom, my dad. I was trying to tell everyone. And you know what? Sometimes they don't want to hear it, especially from people close to them. Yes. Right? Especially from people close to them who they've had a relationship with for years. Mm. You know, it's the best way you can do it, in my experience, is not to lecture them or try and persuade them. Because often 
it's just not received in the same you know i don't know if people can resonate with this but in most relationships i remember a few years ago we were skiing my wife and i and we met this other couple and we were skiing with them and earlier in the week i've been trying to um i hope i was trying to share some helpful tips for my wife when skiing <laughs> I, I hope i was trying to share them didn't go down particularly well and then we were out skiing with this other couple and the guy ended up skiing with my wife for a bit and she came out and said oh you know he gave me these great tips on how to do this and i was like hang on a minute I, I... i've been saying that for the last few <laughs> days but what i realized then is that actually it's not heard in the same way yeah. you don't hear it's the same words but they just don't resonate in the same way as when it's someone that little bit removed mm. so i think be the example right you live your life right you don't get triggered by them work on that you change your diet and your sleep and show up as a calmer and more energetic and more peaceful person and when the time is right they'll say hey listen i've noticed that this I, this is this is, happens a lot i've noticed that you you used to be quite reactive here or actually you've got so much more energy or you look fantastic whatever it might be that often is them inquiring going back to what i said about smoking before telling someone else what to do never tends to work well so be the example and they'll come and ask for advice when they're ready for it absolutely and i have that same thing the word energy that you just said that's the one people come to me for i don't say to people yeah you should do this or you shouldn't do that or i would never as you said i don't tell what people what to do yeah. i always say show don't tell but when people come to me or they'll listen to me talk or we'll meet and they'll say how do you have so much energy and you know and when that's the question isn't it when someone asks you then they're they're then ready they're to in. receive it. Yeah, now they're, they're in. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, let's talk about the Power Hour. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Love it, love it. One oh, of my favorite topics. I can't wait because regular listeners will know that, you know, the power hour in its simplest form, for me, the first hour of every day, it's become, you know, it's been six, six, seven years I've been doing this. It's my non-negotiable time. I reclaim the hour and it's for me. You know, I don't even, I used to share my power hour on, on social media. So I'd do an Instagram story at 5.30 in the morning when I was out for a run or, you know, maybe at quarter to six saying, oh, I'm reading this book or I don't even do that anymore because it's really for me now. So it's always, you know, the first hour, whatever time you get up it's not about doing more for the sake of more 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 you know achieve productivity it's actually a kind of a bit of a counter where there's so much of the world fighting for our attention for me the first hour now it's about solitude it's about doing something to start the day the way I want to oh, I and and you know really just yeah I guess before I go into the busyness of mum life work life email social media it's just my first hour and it's changed my life i love hearing from other people what their morning routine is if they have it why they have it so dr rangan chatterjee been waiting for this one tell us about the first hour of your day and what time does it typically start so i was too excited to answer this question <laughs> i love morning routines i've used them with patients for years to help them with all kinds of different health problems i've had it myself 
Um, I like to start the day and get up before my wife and before my kids. I'm a better person in every aspect of my life when I have time to myself each morning. So I have a framework that I talk about called the three M's for morning routine. Mindfulness, movement, and mindset. Now, to be really clear, yes, I think it's a very complete way to do it, and I hope it's useful for some people. But, you know, if you just want to do one of them, even that is going to yield benefits in your life. So as things stand, because I'm constantly tweaking this, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be a lot shorter than it is now, but I'd say it's probably at least half an hour now. Sometimes maybe up to an hour, actually, maybe at weekends, but I'd say at least 30, maybe 40 minutes these days. So I get up, usually by five o'clock, yep. okay? Sometimes even earlier, but five o'clock, what I'll do, I'll come downstairs, uh, live in a house, come downstairs, sit in my pajamas, I'll go to the living room, and I will do a mindfulness practice. At the moment, it's a, uh, a breath hold meditation that I learned about in November, so... It's about three or four minutes of meditation to really relax my body. Then I do a series of breath holds, mm -hmm. which literally is is just wonderful. It's a really great way to see where you're at each morning. You know, what's the state of your nervous system? How well did you sleep? You can really tell in your breath hold time, actually, yeah. what's going on. So that's what I do. That's probably, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, okay, in total. Then I'll go to the kitchen and I make coffee. And I'm very precise with it. I weigh it out. I put it in the French press, uh, pour the water in, then I set a timer for five minutes. That's how long I like my coffee to brew. In those five minutes, I do some form of workout, just five minutes, right? right? In my pajamas. So I make it really, really easy. It could be a bodyweight workout. There might be a kettlebell in the kitchen that I'll swing around or do something. But I will do some form of five-minute workouts mm -hmm. that doesn't require me to get any equipment or look anything up. I keep it really, really simple. That's why I've rarely missed a day in about three years now because I made it part of my routine. Yeah. And then I go to the third M, which is mindset. And mindset is doing something positive to get your mind in the right state of mind, in the right frame for the rest of the day. And that... If, if I'm by myself, that will be, you know, drinking my coffee that's now ready with an uplifting book. You know, I've got a few books kicking around the living room. I'll sit there and I'll read sometimes a chapter, sometimes a few pages, sometimes more if I have more time that makes me feel good and, you know, think about the world. That's it, right? These days it's getting brighter. You know, I'm becoming more hippie and spiritual as I get older. So I will go barefoot in the garden, you know, just try and hear the birds sing. Yeah. Um, but but roughly speaking, that is the framework I use. Mm. And on the days where I convince myself, which is rare anymore, I don't have time. I just need to crack on with the emails today. You know, I always notice it later. I'm more reactive. I'm not as productive. So I've done that enough times. Again, I don't beat myself up when that happens. I use that as a learning opportunity to go, ah, you're a better human being when you have your morning routine. Yeah. So I generally will do it pretty much every day. Mm. Um, and I've had patients who say, Doc, I can't do it. I said, how long have you got? Could you do five minutes? One lady, I remember, single mum, really um, busy, busy life. She had really bad skin problems. I felt stress was a big driver of her skin problems. Mm. She did a five-minute morning routine. And it was the three M's. One minute of a breathing technique that I call the three, four, five breath. When you breathe in for three, hold for four and breathe out for five. Two minutes of some of her favorite yoga sequences. And two minutes of positive affirmations. Right? That changed her life. Yeah. Right? It led to a ripple effect. And about three months later, she hardly had any skin problems because her stress levels went right down. So 
I am a big believer in how you start in the morning is, you know, how you, you do the rest of the day. But I will also say, if you are someone who doesn't think the morning is for them, okay, let me meet you where you're at, right? Maybe the, the tools you share or the tools that I've just shared now, maybe you can do that at another part of the day, right? Maybe use that 3M framework at lunchtime or in the evening before dinner, but some part of the day where you take time to nourish yourself will pay dividends for your health and your happiness. Absolutely. And people will do sometimes because they've probably heard me say it so many times, as you said earlier, when you hear it from somebody else, it lands differently. So I think that's also what I love about asking people this question is that everybody's answer is different. Yeah. You know, I've, I've interviewed so many people on this show and everyone's answer is different and the guests get different things from different people and it can land in a different way. And I really love that as well with just five minutes because everyone, you know, will say they're time poor and they're busy and, oh, maybe I can do the power hour just once a week. Maybe I'll just do it on a, on a Wednesday or, you know, and I say, fine, exactly, meet people where they're at. If you want to do it once a week, great. But if you are so time poor and so busy and so overworked and so stressed if you're giving to your kids to your work yeah. to everyone else all day so much so that you can't give yourself five minutes I really think that you have to reassess you have to look and say you deserve five minutes a day you deserve I say an hour a day but don't think that it's self-indulgent or it's selfish or you don't have time because of x y and z because as you've just described whether it's a skin condition whether it's a a feeling of just raised cortisol and stress yeah. and franticness is what i find if i don't have my yeah, power exactly. hour, it's franticness because i am a busy person a lot of energy doing a lot of things so for me it's how i counteract that busyness is by feeling yeah. calm and not frantic and knowing that you deserve that time, whether it's five minutes or an hour. You have to prioritize yourself and your own health and your own happiness. Oh, couldn't agree more. Oh, it's been so great having you here. I've uh, absolutely loved it. I, yeah, I'm glad we finally were able to, to meet in person to do this. It's been fantastic. Yeah. So thank you so, so much. Oh, not at all. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks, everyone, as always, for tuning in. We are taking a short break from the Power Hour for a couple of weeks. So I'll be back very soon. We've got an incredible lineup of guests coming for Series 5. So have a great few weeks. Stay safe and I'll be back soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 